Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, March the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last month, the Guardian newspaper in the United Kingdom published an article by President Michael D. Higgins in which the President described the process of what he calls his ethical remembering by historians and philosophers and by others as part of the current centenary commemoration of the events which led to the foundation of the independent Irish state. Among other things, the President suggested that there was a disinclination in British academic and journalistic circles to critique empire and imperialism, and he contrasted what he called that feigned amnesia unfavourably with the willingness of us in Ireland to examine our own history of Irish nationalism. He said, and I quote, While it has been vital to our purposes in Ireland to examine nationalism, doing the same for imperialism is equally important and has a significance far beyond British-Irish relations. I think it is fair to say that that observation was not received with unalloyed joy in all sections of the British media. So is Michael D. Higgins right about the importance of studying imperialism, understanding what its contemporary legacy might be? And do we all agree on what imperialism actually is in the first place anyway, and what its legacy might be? I am delighted to be joined by Jane Ullmeyer. She is Erasmus Smith Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin, and she's Chair of the Irish Research Council, and she is currently delivering some really interesting lectures as part of the James Ford Lectures at the University of Oxford on Ireland, on Empire, and on the early modern world. So she is extremely well qualified to address some of these questions. Jane, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to be here, Hugh. Thank you for inviting me. Can I start with a really easy question? What do we mean when we say the word imperialism? (laughs) Do you know, empires were the norm in the world for millennia. It's nation states that are the blip on the historical horizon. And the truth is that, you know, we're most familiar with the Greek and the Roman empires, but but actually empires were the norm. What we understand, though, today by empire tends to be the control of a dominant power uh, over uh, a less dominant one. So empire is the language of power and imperialism is a way of exercising that power. And I think when we talk about Ireland, of course, we have to remember that we were uh, England's first colony and that relationship has been an imperial one for over 700 years. So empire is particularly pertinent and relevant to any discussions here in Ireland. And uh, you, you, I mean, you mentioned colonies there and the relationship between imperialism or empire and colonies or colonialism is probably is one of the one of the sort of key issues there. So when I was reading around this before before we spoke, I, I got the impression that whereas empires have been with us probably since they first sprang up in Mesopotamia several thousand years ago, the idea of imperialism, which implies a sort of an ideology or a superstructure, is normally used these days to relate to the kind of the European projects since the Enlightenment, since the 17th century or so, and then the expansion out across the world of the empires of Britain and France and various other European countries. Is that true? Does that mean we don't think of, say, of the Romans as imperialists in that sense? 
Oh, no, I think actually uh, when we think of imperialism, I would take it right back to the classical world. And I think it's very important that we do that. And I think it's very important to remember that the Renaissance was about, if you want, the rebirth, the rediscovery of the classical world. And that's why, if you want, uh, imperialism gets revived in uh, the 16th and 17th centuries. But it's very much those classical uh, models that are informing how people in the early modern world uh, thought and conceived of empire. The other thing I would say in an Irish context, Hugh, is that somebody like Gerald of Wales, Geraldus Cambrensis, obviously he was writing in the 12th century, but there was very much an ideological spin, for want of a better word, on his take on Ireland. And and he would have been one of the first exponents to suggest that the Irish were racially inferior and somehow, you know, we were barbaric, we were uh, uncivil. So, you know, this rhetoric of othering has a very long history in Ireland. And it's interesting the way somebody like Geraldus Cambrensis, the way his uh, Topographia, uh, one of his most important publications, was completely re-energised when it was uh, republished in uh, the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. It became a bestseller, actually. So it perpetuated um, this othering of uh, the Irish. And that in itself uh, triggered a response by many Irish writers who responded in mostly in Latin, but also uh, in Irish, to this very negative stereotyping of the Irish uh, by Gerald of Wales. That in some ways recalls the the Roman attitude towards the people who lived outside their frontiers, who they characterised as as barbarians, you know, and and low, a lower form of humanity. But I'm guessing that in some cases, projects that begin as imperial ones end up becoming nation formation in their own right. You know, France starts with a number of smaller states at the centre of what we now call France and gradually incorporates places like like Brittany and uh, the Occitan in the south and that. And they ultimately become part of the nation state. The same happens to some extent with, with Russia. And then sometimes those projects don't take, which I suppose is the story of Ireland. <laughs> um, that's a nice way of looking at it, Hugh. So this is an age of personal monarchy. Um, uh, and um, obviously, in an Irish context, uh, the monarch or the Tudors are, are very significant. And it's Henry VIII who first makes Ireland a kingdom. And you get the passage of the kingship Act in 1541. Um, However, it's with the accession of a king called James VI of Scotland and the first of England, Ireland and Scotland that we see the creation of, if you want, the British state as we would understand it in in a modern context. But it's very much seen as a composite monarchy, a multiple monarchy. The modern state, as we understand it, is really a product of the 19th century and not of this period. And very interestingly, all of these early modern monarchs, they had ambitions to be imperial. So they, they they saw the world through the lens of empire, themselves, of course, very influenced uh, by the classical models, especially the Roman models of empire. So, you know, again, I think it's very important that we understand history through the lens of contemporaries and we don't read it from the perspective of the twenty. 20- First century, looking back, and I think that's one of the big lessons that certainly I, I hope people will take away from these current discussions uh, around empire. We have to be very careful about judging anybody here. It's understanding 
what contemporaries were doing and trying to understand it through their eyes. I remember a very long time ago now interviewing a film director who had just made a, a let him remain nameless, but he had just directed a film about a miscarriage of justice starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And he said at one point during the course of our interview that um, as a statement of fact, that the Irish were the only people in Europe who had been colonised. And I kind of started at that. And I, I don't think that's true. I'm not sure if you think that's true, but I think it's an interesting misconception or a way of telling the Irish story. I wonder what you think of that. Oh, well, you know, it's Irish exceptionalism. Um, uh, and there are numerous examples of other peoples who have been colonised. I think what we have in Ireland, though, is it was very early and um, obviously it went on for a very long period of time. But the reality is that there are other examples of it. So some of the most aggressive imperialists in terms of internal expansionism, uh, of course, were the Ottomans, the Russians and the spread of the Muscovite Empire. But we see this then with the other Western European powers. Uh, You mentioned France earlier, but we see it very clearly in Iberia uh, with the the Spanish, the Portuguese. We also see it in Central Europe with the Austrian Habsburgs, where effectively regions are colonised. And that's where, again, we need to think of empire through the lens of of the contemporaries and, and not look at history backwards. I mean, sometimes when I when I look at that, it, it seems to be, as you say, it's a kind of exceptionalism. It's also a sort of Anglocentrism or, you know, a lack of knowledge about about the broader European context. But it does, I suppose, it's it's understandable, partly because, as you've you've already said, Ireland was a, a sort of a proving ground for certain theories of English of English imperialism, which then some of those practices were then carried out in the nineteenth century as Britain was becoming. Um, the largest empire the world had ever seen, certainly for a while. So the ramifications of those ideologies and those practices were rolled out across the world. Very much so, Hugh. And I'll maybe give you a few concrete examples. So picking up on what we were just saying about Gerald of Wales, there's a man, a very famous Renaissance poet called Edmund Spencer, uh, uh, who wrote The Fairy Queen. But he would have been uh, somebody who would have simply lifted wholesale the ideas of Gerald of Wales and then modified them. And uh, uh, in his work, especially his view of the present state of Ireland, we see what we would call today the development of racism. So in other words, it's calling for the extermination of the Irish race and its replacement with English Protestant planters. He calls for very the use of very extreme measures, including starvation and famine to be used against the Irish, the introduction of martial law. I mean, it's the raw exercise of violence uh, that somebody like Spencer is actually suggesting be used in early modern Ireland. And Spencer then becomes a bestseller over time and plays a very important role in shaping the mindsets of imperialists in the Anglophone world in the 18th and right through into the 19th century. So in that sense, this racial uh, stereotyping um, that we see happening in Ireland from the 12th century and particularly from the 17th century is then uh, carried across uh, time and across geographies. Uh, So obviously we see it um, uh, uh, transferred into the Atlantic world. And if you're familiar with some of the cartoons produced in the 19th century of especially the Irish Fenians, they're portrayed as monkey-like, lower forms of humanity. 
And that um, othering and that pro- that racism is about how you control. So it's about the, the exercise of authority and dominance. And, and that became a characteristic then of uh, the British Empire, of course, then in Africa and across Asia as well. So, so Ireland, you know, really was the laboratory for that. But also in other ways, Hugh, Ireland became a laboratory for, if you want, how law and especially martial law was trialed and then exported, but also Anglicisation. Um, Anglicisation, and today we would call it cultural imperialism. So Ireland really was a testing ground for England for, in a whole variety of ways, uh, and, 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 we, and we shouldn't ignore that. So can I be a sort of devil's advocate for a moment and say, you, I mean, you're describing a history of um, violence, oppression, cultural subjugation, uh, and sometimes expulsion, and it's it's pretty grim. But I I always think of that um, scene in Monty Python's Life of Brian, where they have that argument about what do the Romans ever do for us, and they come up with a whole range of things, including you know sanitation, education, roads, you know the whole shebang. I mean, would it not be more historically comprehensive to look at the broad span? of what empire has brought, not just in Ireland, but around the world as well, rather than, I, th- I feel sometimes at, right now, that it is almost caricatured. Um, yes. Uh, so so first thing is, I don't think we should be shy about acknowledging uh, the extreme violence uh, that accompanies empire. I think that's just the reality of empire. Now, I think then you're right. We need to uh, look at, at other aspects of, if you want, the unfolding of empire and what that meant. In an Irish context, it, it transformed our landscape. So in other words, we saw a lot of deforestation occurring in Ireland on the foot of uh, colonialism as woods were cleared, partly because they were, if you want, hiding at places for per- people who were perceived to be subversive. Um, we see the growth of towns and commercialization and a consumption culture. This all came in on the foot of uh, this desire to make Ireland English. We see the building of grand houses. Um, we see very profound changes in terms of people's diets, uh, what people consumed, what they wore. So, I mean, there were lots and lots and lots of changes occurring on the foot of empire. I don't think it's for us to judge what's good, what's bad. I think it's to acknowledge that this is what happened. You know, the plantation landscape, you go um, to, to many counties, especially in Northern Ireland, and they're littered with um, castles and fortified houses that were all built during uh, the early decades of the 17th century because it literally was a frontier zone. The plantation towns. Uh, My mother was from Cookstown and, and, you know, this wide, wide street or Ochnacloy, you know, these wide streets with a market cross, a jail at one end. You know, there was a sort of a layout to these plantation towns in Ulster and in Munster. So, you know, our landscape was changed on the foot of this. And and obviously that's something uh, that we study, that we acknowledge. The other thing I would say is that there was extensive intermarriage. There was a lot of economic interactions between the various communities uh, living on the island. And we saw that from the 12th century, if you want 
Gaelicised Ireland interacting with Anglicised Ireland, the Old English as they became the Anglo-Norman settlers were known and the uh, Indigenous, if you want, uh, Gaelic-speaking Native Irish. A lot of intermarriage, a lot of, if you want, cross-fertilisation in terms of language and, and culture. And we see that continuing over time. We see extensive intermarriage between Catholic and Protestant. And that often uh, resulted in Protestants becoming very, very Catholic. Equally, it resulted in the conversion uh, of Catholics to Protestantism. So there's this constant assimilation uh, in both directions occurring. And of course, then by the early 18th century, a third of the population uh, living in Ireland were either direct descendants of the colonists who had settled in Ireland in the 17th century. And it calls into question that, well, what does it mean to be Irish when you have this, if you want, mongrel hybrid population? It's a bit like today, Hugh, 20% of the people living in Ireland weren't born here. What does it mean to be Irish? So I think as historians, we constantly need to be asking that question. So, So it's a very complicated and very messy story on the ground. And again, I think understanding that better uh, helps us acknowledge just the sheer complexity of, of the past. Outside the um, the halls of academe, do you think that we understand that kind of complexity here in Ireland as, as well as we should? Do you know, that's a really good question. Probably not, actually. I think, you know, this is one of the consequences of having lived under British rule for seven centuries, then when the Republic of Ireland secured its independence, we wanted to create a narrative that allowed us to move away from that imperial legacy and to ensure that, see, the winners write history. Um, and, and we see this in many countries that were former colonies, this desire to create a narrative that if you want, almost, uh, I was going to say pretends something never happened, that's too strong, but you want to downplay uh, the imperial legacy. We see that very clearly in India. And I can say, you know, I was very shocked by that. Let me just say this because I think it is useful in terms of how uh, we in Ireland engage with our imperial past. But I do a lot of comparative work between Ireland and India. And I spent uh, the better part of the academic year 2014-15 living in New Delhi um, and working in a wonderful university there, JNU. And um, there was a lot of scholars who worked on the the Mughal period, they call it medieval, but it takes you to the mid 18th century when the Mughals uh, were basically ruling India. And then everything fast forwarded to uh, uh, post-independence, post-1947. And it was as if the period in between just didn't happen. Uh, There was a real reluctance uh, by modern contemporary Indian historians to deal with the period of the empire, of the Raj, even of the East India Company. And I think that comes with the birth of a new nation that actually you need to, you know, part of that is is, is the creation of, of a history, of a narrative in which people don't want to have to engage with the complexities of the past. Actually, it's very interesting now. Here we are 100 years on after, you know, obviously partition uh, uh, complicates things enormously in an Irish context as it does in an in Indian one. But but I think certainly in the Republic of Ireland, there's a maturity, a political maturity that we're actually able to go back and revisit these issues. But it also means because we haven't been talking about them and because there's a lack of awareness about them, that this, it's coming as a bit of a shock to people as well. And I, I was very struck, Hugh, I, I wrote an op-ed 
for the Irish Times uh, back in uh, December on Ireland and empire and engaging again in this imperial conversation. And the reaction to that was very interesting. I got hundreds of emails from people saying, I'm so glad that you are bringing these issues to the fore because it allows me as an Irish person to actually, if you want, revisit my own personal history. You know, I had an uncle in the British Army. Uh, I had a uh, my father worked in Hong Kong uh, as part of the imperial administration there. You know, people felt very awkward about that. But but this was an opportunity to actually engage with their own personal histories in a very different way. Then you would get grumpy letters uh, uh, in the Irish Times. And, and I would expect that because actually we're touching on issues that are at the heart of identity here. You know, and I'm all up for respectful debate and discussion. What I wasn't prepared for was just the extreme reaction that it provoked on social media, especially uh, on Twitter. Now, maybe you're used to being trolled or or having this very negative uh, uh, reaction. But what I saw were extremists and a number of varieties. On the one hand, you had people who were clearly extreme nationalists who felt that somehow, you know, I was tampering with Irishness and identity. Uh, then you had the misogynists. I was clearly a woman. And um, it's very interesting to see how uh, I think women do attract more vitriol than men in these uh, circumstances. My surname is Olmeyer, and people were genuinely puzzled by that. And I think people associated it with being Jewish. And, and so the, then the anti-Semites came out. And the fact I was born in Africa, I think people thought I was African. So then the racists came out. Uh, nothing could have prepared me for that. And I think that is something that we as academics have to get our head around, because obviously, you know, I spent my life standing up to bullies, whether they're in person or online. But it does call in, you know, again, things around academic freedom and the importance of having these extremely you know, sensitive conversations, but having them in a in a way that's informed um, and grounded in fact and empirical uh, research and evidence. But, but what does it tell us, Hugh? It tells us that history matters. It's core to our identity today as it has been over time. And it's very important that we as scholars are not branded as public enemies, number one. All we're trying to do is facilitate um, discussions around issues that have been uh, maybe uh, uh, buried. And I think that's all President Higgins is trying to do in his own lecture, is to bring some of these issues to the fore and invite uh, a respectful uh, discussion about them because it's part of who we are. And if we're going to go anywhere together, uh, part of the understanding is we have to understand where we've come from. So so it's, it's, it's very complicated, but I think it's very important that we do air and have discussions. I'm sorry to hear about your experience on Twitter. That sounds terrible. You seem to have managed to alienate all the right people, I suppose, is the only uh, is, is the only good thing about it. What do you think of President Higgins's observation about Britain confronting its own imperial past? Do you think he's right that it hasn't been done sufficiently? Well, obviously, it's an area I'm hugely interested in. And of course, I should have been a fellow at All Souls College in Oxford. And Oxford is the epicentre of the British Empire at its peak in the mid-19th century, especially Balliol College, uh, where, of course, people like Boris Johnson would have uh, studied. So, you know, Oxford and Empire are uh, very closely associated. And I was quite looking forward to giving the Fords uh, in Oxford and being a fellow at All Souls, which, of course, has a library named after a man called Codrington, who 
uh, would have made a fortune on the back of slavery uh, in, in the Caribbean, but also um, literally in an auditorium beside the statue of Cecil Rhodes. And we've had this whole uh, Rhodes Must Fall campaign and Statues Must Fall. What I think is that it's, it's again, in, in a UK context, it is very important that these discussions are happening. My son actually studied classics in Oxford um, and was very much part of that Roads Must Fall campaign. So I've seen this conversation as a, through my academic eyes, but also through the eyes of a student. And that was fascinating. I've also seen Oxford really try to react in a very constructive way to encourage um, a debate discussion around some of these issues. And, and I think, you know, that's what universities need to do. So, so that would be what I'm most familiar with. Um, I think that it's not just Oxford, though, universities like Bristol, Glasgow, all of whom would have um, been very closely associated in the past with, especially with, with enslaved peoples, are trying very, very hard to um, be very honest about the legacy of, of slavery and imperialism in their institutions. And I think that bodes very well, as are many of the museums and, and cultural institutions. However, the extremists, many of whom are anonymous, going back to our friends on social media, um, uh, are taking them to task for this because it's somehow, you know, being regarded as critical uh, of Britain and imperialism at, at this moment of Brexit. So it's playing into those right wing nationalists uh, in, in a British context, too. But it's not just anonymous people on social media. I no, mean, there's, it's a, no, no, there's a current controversy that. in the United Kingdom about the, the British government is pushing back against certain programs of, you know, reinterpretation of, of the country's past in, in some of the, some of the national institutions like the National Trust, for example. So it's a live political debate. No, no, it is. And I, I mean, that's at one extreme and it is a live political debate. You're absolutely right. And many of my colleagues are, you know, at the receiving end of, uh, uh, but they are at the receiving end of abuse on social media and through the tabloid press. So it, it's not as if, it, you know, it's, it's not being played out in a very personalised way, which is not the way I think we should be doing it. We need to be far more grown up about how we have these discussions. It's easy for me to say that, not so easy uh, uh, to achieve that. But I think actually um, it, we have to have them. It's essential that we have them. And I think it's not just having them in Britain. We need to have them across Europe. And it goes back to your point earlier, because it's not just that, you know, the British had a, 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 an empire that was a global one. So did the French. Uh, so did the Belgians. So did the uh, Spanish and Portuguese. So it's it's a, a pan-European conversation. And obviously it extends around the world uh, into Asia and the Atlantic. And I think when it becomes polarised the way it is in the UK, you know, that isn't helpful. Or when it's hijacked uh, by extremists for political reasons, that's not helpful either, nor is it helpful when any government tries to control the narrative. And we see this, for example, in Modi's India, where you have the RSS party, the extreme uh, Hindu nationalists, wanting to rewrite history in a way uh, uh, to suit their own political ends. You know, that's in no nation's interest and certainly not of our nearest neighbour. But it is a feature, I think, of extremism and right-wing uh, uh, political governments, uh, not just, as I say, in Europe, but 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 globally. I mean, you referred to um, some of those protests around Cecil Rhodes, for example, in, in, in England. And, there, you know, we're starting to see some signs of similar things here, 
particularly, I think, in relation to the, the Berkeley Library in your own university. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think we can expect to see some debate on that. I'm not convinced by some of the kind of, if I was being rude about it, I'd say sort of performative self-flagellation that goes on around these things. I mean, I think it's absolutely worthwhile for that everybody should find out and inform themselves about the history as much as possible. But this kind of, these kinds of acts of of iconoclasm or renaming, what do you think of them? Well, I love that word, performative uh, self-flagellation. Um, most of the statues in the Republic of Ireland have come down. So, you know, at least we've already gone through that phase. Um, uh, there are a couple now in Northern Ireland that, that are still standing, including John Mitchell and uh, others who, you know, if they'd been south of the border would already have gone. Anyway, um, I, I think when it comes to it, um, uh, I, I feel it's very important that, uh, again, we're very calm, we're very measured about this. Uh, nothing needs to be done in a frenzy. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Barclay Library. Obviously, uh, George Barclay um, was one of Ireland's greatest philosophers. But the reality is in Rhode Island, he also owned slaves Um and actually, um, it was Yale University that has a college named after Barclay that first uncovered the fact that he was a slave owner. Um, and, and that's something we in Trinity will have to look at and discuss and debate. And we'll have that conversation. I don't think anybody uh, should be uh, rushing to anything. Uh, but there's a big project just starting in Trinity, um, funded by the, the, the current provost around slavery, imperialism and racism, where we've actually are, we're actually employing a postdoctoral fellow to really forensically look at Trinity's colonial past. And let's actually have a conversation that is evidence-based and that allows us to understand exactly what happened. So rather than seizing on sensational elements of it, we actually just have a full understanding of it. And above all, we're putting it into context, Hugh. So I think, you know, what I would be saying to people is engage in the discussion, engage in the debate, uh, but try, uh, don't be ju judgmental here. Uh, that, that, that's not actually helping, um, uh, uh, but, but, but do help understand. And it's the understanding that I would be promoting uh, as an educator. And, and blowing up a statue might make you feel better in the short term, but actually, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that's the right thing to do with statues. What you do is you put them in a museum um, and you have context there explaining why that statue uh, stood where it did for, for that period of time. There's, there's very effective ways of actually providing context. And it's that context that's so desperately needed. Do you worry at all that this sort of weaponization of some of these issues, which seems to be happening at the moment, they're being enlisted as, you know, as, as weapons in, in contemporary culture wars, that that might make it difficult to have the sort of rational debate which you're talking about? Yeah, I do. I think we all have to recognise that. Um, and, you know, history is a very powerful political weapon and tool. Um, and there's no denying that. Um, again, what I would be appealing to is that, you know, if we want to understand who we are, we've got to understand where we've come from. And part of that is our engagement uh, with empire. And can I say that it's not just engaging in empire in Ireland itself as a colony, but it's remembering that the Irish, both Catholic and Protestant, we're active in engaging in the empires of England and also of France, Spain. And of course, the Catholic Church would, as an institution, engaged very proactively uh, across uh, the empire, primarily uh, the, the, the British Empire. And I think it's very important that, you know, when we have this discussion, we have it 
in a global context as well as an, a national context. Yeah, because finally, I mean, it, I, I hear what you're saying about that the quality of the debate having improved in Ireland. But, you know, all those horrible little people with their three tricolour flags and their Twitter identity when they were having a go at you back in December, they're out there. They have a very much black and white. Last week we were discussing Northern Ireland. We were talking about binary descriptions of everything. They have a good guys and bad guys, black hats and white hats. They are not willing to accept the kind of shadings and complexities and mixed personal histories which people have. And also, perhaps they're not accepting the fact that most of the history we're talking about here was perpetrated by people on people who are all long dead. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Nor are they remembering, and I'll give you the example, um, there's an island in the Caribbean called Montserrat, which was known as the Irish island. It was part of the English uh, Atlantic Empire, but was colonised mostly by Irish people who would have been transported as indentured servants from Ireland, but within a generation went on to become very effective slave masters themselves. So if you want that cycle of abuse then was perpetuated and they you know, then became, as I say, part of, of, of the establishment. So you, you can never take human nature. It's, it's greed, a, a desire to move up the social ladder, all of these sorts of issues are are part of human nature. And the Irish did that as much as any other nation uh, when they had the opportunity. But, But to your point about extremists, I think if we let extremists control any conversation or any narrative, we failed miserably, Hugh. So rather than conceding anything, what I would be inviting the majority of the population to do is to say, let's engage in this discussion It's difficult, it's painful, but it's so important that we do it. And especially in the context of Northern Ireland, uh, because I grew up in Belfast and I saw firsthand just how important to the identity, particularly of the Protestant slash loyalist slash unionist community, uh, some of these moments in our history are to their identity, as indeed, of course, there are historical events that are core to the identity of, of the Catholic population. But I think the population in the Republic of Ireland has moved on in terms of our relationship with the past. I think it's more challenging for uh, uh, some uh, uh, communities in uh, Northern Ireland. And it brings me to a project that I worked on uh, called the 1641 Depositions. And just a couple of words about that project, Hugh, because in Ireland, as I just said, England's first colony um, and the most powerful way of resisting uh, colonialism and imperialism is by rebelling. And the Irish regularly rebelled against English rule. The most effective rebellion was in October 1641 when the Catholic Irish uh, rose up uh, killed uh, many of their neighbours. Uh, and it wasn't just uh, uh, murder, uh, mass murder. It was also the use of extreme violence. It was our own encounter with mass killing and ethnic cleansing. Now, first thing to point out is that the Protestants report, uh, retaliated with equal violence against the Catholics. But only really the voices of the Protestants are recorded in these 1641 depositions, which are a body of an amazing archive in Trinity, 8,000 witness uh, uh, testimonies from this period. Anyway, these uh, uh, depositions were trotted out by propagandists across history to stir up anti-Catholicism at key moments in the past and would have been used by the likes of the late Ian Paisley, Lord Banside, 
uh, in very public ways, always remember 1641. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, uh, back in 2010, uh, myself and colleagues uh, in uh, the history department at Trinity, but also working with colleagues at, uh, in Aberdeen and Cambridge, published these depositions in their entirety. And we published them online for everybody to see, because all of a sudden we were trying to say, listen, these have been filleted for propagandistic use for centuries. Now let's actually engage with the depositions as historical resources, but putting lots of health warnings around it so people understand the caveats and the challenges of actually interrogating this uh, source. Now, they've been available for the last 10 years, and it's been heartening to see how um, uh, the general public, not just in Ireland, but around the world, has engaged uh, with that project, how the Peace and Reconciliation Fund, uh, which is part given out by the Department of Foreign Affairs, allowed us to develop modules for school children across Ireland to actually help with that process of reconciliation on our own island. How I've been able to use the depositions in other areas, for example, in Sri Lanka, that have experienced civil war. Uh, and actually by talking about what happened in Ireland hundreds of years ago, you're helping people to come to terms with civil war that has been experienced much uh, more uh, uh, recently. So I think the you know history is very important in terms of having these deep, meaningful conversations conversations around reconciliation. And I want to just say when we finished that project in 2010, we asked the then president, Mary McAleese, to launch the depositions, which she very, very graciously agreed to do. She, she used the opportunity, bridge building had been a theme of her presidency, but she used it as an opportunity to really say, you know, it's very important we bow to the past without being bound by it. Anyway, we also then recognised that obviously Mary McAleese came from one particular community in Belfast. Um, and it was very important, if you want, that the other side was also recognised. So we invited Ian Paisley, the late Lord Banside, to also co-launch the depositions with Mary McAleese. And much to my amazement, he agreed to do it. And that night in the long room, Hugh, we made history. It was quite extraordinary because uh, Paisley, now obviously by this point he was a man of peace, he wanted to lie well in the Chronicle, but there was a magnanimity there um, and a sense of actually, you know, here we have some of the most controversial records in Irish history, uh, but we have to acknowledge what they say, what they tell us about who we are. And again, um, uh, 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 they're part of our journey as we come together, hopefully with a shared future. It was an extraordinarily powerful, powerful moment. And for me, that's where we can use the past in a very, very constructive way. So I hope that these these discussions around empire, which are a version, obviously 1641 was that in microcosm, this is a much larger scale, actually allow us to have that sort of mature uh, uh, conversation uh, that the president is, is hoping that we can do, obviously inviting colleagues to do it uh, outside of Ireland, whether they step up to the plate remains to be seen. But I think that is all extremely important uh, that we are leading that in as far as uh, and hope that people will engage in the spirit that we're approaching it all. Right. Well, we, we began with one president reaching out for debate and we ended with with another one uh, doing it, which is which is wonderfully elegant and also optimistic and rather heartening. I think we will leave it there, though. So thank you very much indeed, Jane, for for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. Give us an email at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. We always are delighted to hear from you. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.